Okay, so we're going to be going through a, a, a wonderful study, I think, um, this afternoon about fathers, uh, particularly about their role and their, uh, and their work and what the Bible actually says respecting that. Um, the title of the message is The Invaluable Worth of the Father and that has, if you'll notice, perhaps a double meaning. The Invaluable Worth of the Father. And, it's, uh, and I've done it that way on purpose because it's incredible the link that we have between the roles of fathers within their homes and the role of the Father who is in heaven and who we are to represent in our own families. So uh, let's begin with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, we do thank you, dear Lord, for your loving mercy and your grace, your worth within our hearts and within our lives that we would grow, dear Lord, so deeply in the knowledge of who you are and that we would be willing to change the things about our own lives and that if we know you, if we know your word and we know your truth, that we will be willing to hold to it in every way. I pray, dear Lord, that you would be with my brothers and sisters and friends that are here, that they would hear the word with all readiness of mind, search the scriptures to know that those things are true and to apply it to their own lives. We thank you for this wonderful time and we look in anticipation, dear Father, for your work being done within our own lives. And we praise you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. From the beginning in history past, we see God's command to be fruitful to Adam and to, well, to man at that time. To be fruitful and to multiply and to replenish the earth, to literally fill the earth with people. It's a blessing that God sees. It's a blessing that he desired. He desired the earth to be filled with people. And obviously the goal at the very beginning was that those people would have fellowship with God. We're not talking about the sinful people. Because remember that in the beginning, that when God made everything, he said that it was all very good, didn't he? And Adam was very good. He was the pinnacle of the creation of God and God desired fellowship. That's why that commandment went out. And it's a wonderful blessing. But even after the fall, we discover even within scripture, still children are a blessing to a family. In Proverbs one twenty-seven, verse 4, he says, As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. And what a wonderful blessing children are. But there is a responsibility in bringing up those children. And a great measure of that responsibility, according to Scripture, is laid upon the father's shoulders. It's laid upon his shoulders. And... He bears that responsibility for everyone who is within his home. We know that in Scripture it teaches that he is the head of the home and we discover that the buck stops with him. The father is responsible for the home and for the outcome of what occurs within the home. In 2011, Rupert Murdoch, who is a... A lot of you guys know who Rupert Murdoch is. He's a newspaper magnate. He owns television stations, he owns newspapers all over the world. In 2011, he fronted what was known as a Royal Commission in the UK 
to give an account for one of his newspapers and the behaviour of the editorial staff, the chief executive officers, the people that were in charge of that newspaper. When he'd given his testimony, they'd asked him if he bears responsibility for what that newspaper done. Now, to give you an idea, that newspaper was actually hacking people's telephones to get their news stories and also committing bribery. They were bribing police for information on a particular news story. It was underhanded in every way and it came to bear when it were for a death of a young, I think it was a young lady, and just the way they actually went about um, getting information with respect to the death of that individual. Um, the event was so serious that it led to the resignation of his son as the executive chairman of that paper. It also led to the resignation of the Dow Jones chief executive, Les Hinton, News International's legal manager, Tom Crone, and the newspaper's chief executive officer being Rebecca Brooks. And she was the one, she's that long red-headed girl, you would have seen her in the papers or in the uh, television at the time. Some of you remember that, that story? Yeah. Um, and ultimately, it led to the closure of a newspaper, the News of the World, which had been around for 168 years. It led to its closure, ultimately. Rupert Murdoch claimed he has 53,000 employees and he can't bear the responsibility for the behaviour of each one of them. Not taking into account the fact that this wasn't just a lowly person in the, um, in, the, you know, in, the, in the paper factory or anything like that. These were his chief executives. These were people that were very close to him. He bore no responsibility whatsoever for the culture within that company. And if you know anything about Rupert Murdoch, you would know that he is not a man of integrity. Okay? His family is not a, not a people of integrity either. I've read, uh, I've read a book with regards to him and Kerry Packer, interesting individuals. He said... He does not bear any responsibility. But as fathers, we are responsible for our home. Uh, our children may rightly be seen as a reflection of us as fathers. Um, perhaps we're not directly responsible for our grandchildren, um, but certainly everyone, because certainly everybody else is responsible for their, own, for their own actions. And we know that. We know that people are responsible for their own actions. And it's, very also, it's also very difficult to also put 100% of the blame on fathers as well. Yet, the responsibility is on fathers. But everybody has to bear their own responsibility. God speaks about himself as a father. He also speaks about himself in Isaiah, in the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. That can indeed happen. And it's not necessarily a complete reflection on the father. Yet, in scripture, we have the father bearing responsibility for the outcome of his children. United States President Harry S. Truman was known to keep a small sign on his, uh, on his desk in the Oval Office. Anybody remember what that sign said? It says, the buck stops here. The buck stops here. While Rupert Murdoch was unwilling to take responsibility for the actions of a few employees, Harry S. Truman was advertising his responsibility for a nation. We know that there is responsibility 
There has to be responsibility. If you are placed as the head of something, the outcome of that is your responsibility. And it is. I own a company and the outcome of that company is my responsibility. If something goes wrong within that company, it is my fault because I needed to put things in place to ensure that things went well. It's the same thing with fathers. So our first point is the responsibility of the father. In Scripture, the father has been given a responsibility of care for his own and is seen both as protector and provider. Have a look in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5. And verse 8. He is as the provider. Um, it says, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. In the, in the passage it's referring to... Um, yeah, it's referring to those that are providing for their, for their homes, the fathers, okay? the, the ones that are charged with a provision for the, for the family and for the home. The family unit is the model on which society itself is built and society is the model of which civilization is built. So it's the same picture that we see going from the family right through to civilization as a whole. Government, kings, those that are overseeing and ruling and governing within our nation or within our society are also charged with being able to provide a stable environment for society to prosper, for society to do well. Okay, that's the charge of leadership within society as a whole and it begins in the family. It begins in the family. The ideal family is an ideal picture of the ideal society. If the families run well, societies will prosper. If the families are poorly run, societies will eventually disintegrate. And sadly, we see this occurring in rapid time today. And there's a direct correlation between the relationships within the family, the fathers particularly, and the collapse of society. Do I draw the link directly? Yes, I do. I draw the link directly. The father is the one determined by God to be its responsible head. He must be a leader at home, a provider. He must cherish and adore and love his wife, singular, one wife. He must encourage his children, discipline his children, honour God, be dependable, be disciplined, faithful in all his dealings. He must be consistent and he must quit himself like a man and behave like a man. Perhaps we might think that, that drawing this, this, uh, this idea that the man within the home and the family um, is also that same man that is responsible for the potential prosperity or collapse of civilization is a bit exaggerated. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. In 1910, there was a competition that was run by the Times newspaper. And it was a simple competition. And it's back in 1910 that was asking the question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? 
a number of responses came in and pages and almost books could have been written on the number of different responses that came into that question. Now, this is back in 1910. We think we've got problems now as well. You know, they, they had problems back then in 1910. You know, but there was one response that came in that actually won it, won the competition. There was only four words. Only two of those words containing three letters was the one that bared the responsibility for what is wrong with the world. And it simply said, Dear Sir, I am. What is wrong with the world? Dear Sir, I am. I am what is wrong with the world. And it was written by G.K. Chesterton as a theologian, a, um, a very famous theologian at the time. We have to bear responsibility for everything else around us. Now, if we are responsible because of our own sin, of, of the things that are within the world, then the Father is the head of that. He is the one that is responsible for his own home. So what are the things that he's responsible for? Well, firstly, he's responsible to teach. He's responsible to teach. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. got a handful of things that he's responsible for. Teaching is one of them. I've got another two that we'll touch on. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now you remember that this is that wonderful sermon that's been given by Moses after they've come out of the wilderness wanderings, all of Israel. And in verse 4, he gives them a breakdown as to how they are to move on and live. And he says, he says this, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on, and on thy gates. This is the value of teaching. Fathers are charged with teaching, teaching their family, teaching their children. What's the object of teaching? It's the Word of God. It's the Bible, the Bible itself. The Bible is the foundation of our education. If we don't have a thorough understanding of the Bible and the knowledge of what it says, we cannot claim to be educated. So says a much older theologian in times past. He said, no man can claim to have an education until he has an understanding of the Word of God, of the Bible. And the Bible provides so much knowledge for us. It gives us the basic answers to so many questions. You know, what is man? Who is God? What is the purpose of man? What is love? What is sin? What is eternal life? How shall we live? It gives us those answers. Do you know that when you're doing mathematics, when, when a child is growing up, um, in, in days gone by, we used to memorise uh, mathematics tables. Do you remember that? Some of us older ones remember having to memorise maths tables. They had to memorise the multiplication tables and they were always on the back of our little exercise books. I remember those. And you'd have to memorise the multiplication table. But, you know, there was actually four tables you needed to memorise. There was multiplication, it was division, it was subtraction and addition. What was the purpose of that? The purpose of that was you had... You didn't understand it. So this is the wonderful thing about children. Children are brilliant recorders. 
They can absorb information like a sponge. That's why you can teach a child a new language. Right up until the age of 12, they just absorb it, pick it up very, very quickly. So as children, we absorb the foundation information and we retain it in memory. From that point then, it's not difficult to be able to work out other sums because you've already got the foundation of what you know is true. Well, you know, this equals this, so we already know that. Now we've just got to extrapolate that a little bit further. It's exactly the same with the Word of God. Once you have a foundation of truth, once you have a foundation of what you know is true, the rest of our education is just a matter of basic work that goes through that. Within Scripture, it provides us with a knowledge of history, of theology, of grammar, of logic, of science, biology, geography, husbandry, agriculture. It's the basis for our common law. It's the basis for our criminal law. And we can go on. There's so many foundations that come out of the Word of God. When these subjects are understood as the foundation of what is true, all other decisions that man needs to make are made in reference to those things the student already knows to be true. Decisions related to marriage, work, money, property, integrity, wisdom, all those things can be easily made when we understand what the Bible actually says. So the Bible is, an addend- is not an addendum to education. It's the very source of it. It's the very source of it. Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, middle of your Bible. Psalm 119, some of you know, is the longest psalm in the Scripture. It's got 176 verses in it. All but four of them speak directly with regards to the Word of God. Psalm 119, we're looking for one of the last ones in Psalm in uh, verse 99. Now have a look what David says here, it's incredible. And I rejoiced when I read it because uh, I'm, I'm not an educated man. I didn't, I didn't finish high school, I didn't go on and, and obtain university degree or anything like that. But the Word of God, when I discovered that we can know so many things through the Word of God, I was encouraged, really encouraged. And this is what he says here. He says in verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. Those words, precepts, testimonies, referring directly to the Word of God itself. And that's what he says. Daniel Webster said, education is useless without the Bible. He's a politician in England many years ago. George Washington, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been said of him that it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Noah Webster, the one who gave us our English dictionary of that fame, he says, the Bible was America's basic textbook in all fields. God's word contained in the Bible has furnished all necessary rules to direct our conduct. But in 1964, the Bible was banned in schools. Our public schools banned the Bible. Banned it in the US, a couple of years later, it banned it here in Australia. And our education system seemed to have been on a rapid decline. And it can be evidence from that point. But you know, this wouldn't have any impact had Christian fathers done all they could to teach this book in their own private education. But fathers very rarely do that, even today, even Christian fathers. And I can be just as guilty of that. This is a book that needs to be taught. We are responsible to do that. 
Today evil is good, black is white, light is darkness. Fools now run the nations of the world and those who taught not their children uh, find the cost very expensive. And there is a cost. As the foundation of truth has been removed from the family, society now gropes about in the dark, hoping to stumble upon some anchor to rest their hearts. That's what seems to be happening within society. So we are commanded to teach. We're also commanded to train. The Bible says in Proverbs 22.6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. This training element has positive and negative influences to it. Training is that that is led by example. It's led to demonstrate, to show. That's the positive element of it. In other words, if I wanted to uh, teach my child how to change the tyre of a car, we go in there and we get our hands dirty and we do the work and they change the tyre so they learn how to change it. Um, so that's a good thing to do. You probably need to do it a couple more times to really get it down pat. Saskia's changed the tyre of the four-wheel drive, haven't you? I, got, I had to get Saskia to learn how to change the tyre when she got her driver's licence. Figure I'll get her on the hard one, get her on the four-wheel drive first. So we do it by example. Um, we do it by, um, by doing those things, but we could speak about the commandments of the Lord, and it's learned also by obedience. Okay, we learn the commandments of God by obeying them first, trusting them, believing them, and obeying them. And then all of a sudden we learn those commandments, we learn those things by actively taking part of it. But it also has a negative element to it. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. So you'll go back if you're in Psalms, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Some of you might remember this um, this part of, uh, of the scriptures if you've ever heard of Eli the high priest he was a high priest of the time and it was just before young Samuel came into his charge he had a couple of sons sons didn't behave themselves very well um, they, they, they weren't nice guys they were doing things that ought not to be done but sadly they weren't, well, they weren't restrained and this is the prophecy and it's spoken directly to Samuel at this point um, I said First Samuel, chapter 10, yeah, verse, verse 3. Oh, no, it's not it. I'm in the right spot. One, chapter 9. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. Is that the one? I've written down the wrong reference. I've got it all down on my, my notepad. Apologies, hang on. I might have been chapter 2 and I've written down chapter 10. Let me read it to you. I'll just read it to you. He says this. He says, And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of every one that heareth it shall tingle. In the day, in that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I, when I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. He restrained them not. Fathers are charged to restrain evil within their home, to restrain evil that may be committed by their own sons, by their own children. Now you'll notice that in that passage, these sons were not small toddlers. They weren't ones that you could smack with your hand to get them into line. These were receiving the offerings from the people. Okay? They must have been at least old enough to be um, frightening the people who were making the offerings because they were saying to them, if you don't give it to me the way I want it, I'll take it by force. I'll take it by force. So these were grown men. Yet they were commanded by Eli. Eli was expected to restrain their evil. Was it chapter 3? So discipline and chastisement is the negative element of being trained. The father-to-be is the one that ruleth his own house, remember? Having his children in subjection with all gravity in 1 Timothy 3.4. In other words, he has to have control over the behaviour of his children. And this means he will need to also deal with their error corporally or physically at times. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child but the rod of correction shall drive it from him. Foolishness is bound in the heart of children. They're at one with it. They're not born with wisdom. It'll actually take the rod of correction to drive off foolishness and to replace it with with wisdom. And that's what the Word of God is telling us here. This activity has to be done with wisdom. When it... Understand something. I mean, if a child was to touch a red-hot plate on your stove okay foolishness goes to touch it yes it's red hot you'd figure the glowing color would ward them off you know but the very touching of that how are they gained wisdom (laughs) pain and it happens directly and immediately okay there is a certain level of um there's a certain behavior that doesn't work in real life society doesn't accept it Society, society won't accept it, okay? Therefore, we have to teach from children that that is not right behaviour. That is not right behaviour. And we need to make sure that that's right. And the world wants to take that right away. They want to take away any form of discipline. And this is going to be a real detriment for the society that we live in. The activity has to be done and done wisely. In Proverbs 19, 18, it says, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Interesting. While there is hope. It clearly gives us an insight that there will be a time when a parent's chastening of a child will no longer have any effect on them. There might be a time where that would happen. Chasten them while there is hope. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Notice in the text, love is demonstrated at times when chastening is required. That's how love is demonstrated. 
But when chastening being required is spared, we're actually showing that we hate our children. Not interested. I don't want to do what they like. Now, guys, I have to tell you, this is what's happening so much today. Fathers are finding it too difficult to parent, to be a father. They would rather let their children go off and do whatever it is that they want to do than stand in the way and say, no, this is wrong behaviour. It's unacceptable. And let them do whatever they want. See, there's two ways of parenting. Two ways of parenting. Three. One is, stop your children from doing absolutely everything. Lock them in the closet, shut the doors, lock them under lock and key, put a chain around their ankle just in case they want to break out the window, make sure they can't do anything, say no, 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 no to everything. Yeah? That's one way. Easy. Easy. Child comes and asks you to go to a party. Nope. Comes and asks you to do this. No. Comes and asks you to do that. No. No. Really easy. The other way is yes to everything. Letting, letting them do anything they want to do. That's the other way that's really easy to do. But parenting, parenting is work, brethren. Parenting is work. It means you need to have the wisdom. The wisdom to... Um, guide and lead your family to be able to show them what is right, what is wrong. Sometimes, and this is the hard bit, sometimes you need to also allow them to make a decision for themselves and bear the consequences of that decision. Everything about parenting is about learning to, about training your children in the ways they should go, but also about letting go. Remember what we're doing? We're training them to live outside the home. The father is actually bringing up, and we'll touch on this later, the father is bringing up his children in a way that will eventually, he will no longer be the authority, the father will be the authority. The training and the work that we're doing at this point in time, we should be leading them to have a relationship with the Lord once they leave our home. That's our charge. Not a small charge, is it? It's not a small charge. It's not a small job. It's a big job and it's not an easy one. And will we make mistakes? Yeah. We'll make mistakes, you know. So we spare the rod. We've heard it. You spoiled the child. Here it tells us that we hate them as a result of sparing that rod. So while our children are young, the cost is cheap. The cost of disciplining. You see, there is a cost to be paid. There is a cost as far as raising children is concerned, as far as bringing up a family is concerned. There is a cost involved. And that cost will be paid. It can either be paid when they're young and the price is cheap, or, and it'll be paid by yourself and your wife, or it will be paid later when the cost is much more expensive. And it'll be paid by yourself and your wife, and society. They will be paying the cost of disciplining your children. We have that responsibility as men. Last point on this one, trust. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Fathers, it's our responsibility to trust the Lord. The relationship goes from our family to the Lord. Our relationship with God is vitally important. 
and we are commanded to trust him. Not lean on our own understanding. Our understanding is not worth anything. We have to be trusting in the Lord. His understanding is absolute. His understanding is absolute. If we lean on our own understanding, we will fall. If we are wise in our own eyes, we are limited. But if we trust in the Lord with all our hearts, and we have a trust that is sure and steadfast, who promises also to direct our paths. That's what we have here in this text. People seek for guidance everywhere, and they seek it in others, hoping that they're going to find something, some form of wisdom, some kernel of truth that they're going to be able to hold on to. They're asking somebody else's advice. They're asking a so-called educated person's advice. We need to seek the Lord. We need to seek the Lord, and we seek it through his word. Next point is the role of the father. The role of the father. The first one in there is to encourage his children. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I've got this one right. My apologies for the other one. Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. Now the children should remember this one and they should be reminding their fathers of this one on a regular basis. And it says there, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, fathers, we've got a nasty natural habit of, of stirring up our children, of provoking them. We've got a nasty habit of doing that. I don't know if you've done it. I've done it. I'm still guilty of occasionally doing it. And it's interesting how encouraging your children actually takes an effort. You actually need to think about it to encourage them. But it's always a blessing. It's always a blessing. There's no room in our house. We speak about it often. There's no room in our house for sarcasm. We hate it. I hate it. And, uh, you know, I grew up with it. I had to deal with it. Um, sarcasm is not encouraging. It's nasty. It's nasty to see it. It's nasty to look at people stirring one another. Oh, but it's only a joke. Yeah, but the jokes go too far and you just don't know where to stop. Okay, so we are to encourage our children. That's our call. Provoking noted here is not that provoking that is positive, such as in Hebrews 10, where we are to provoke one another unto love and good works, this is the more common use of the word, and that is negative. Right through the scripture, we have provoking to anger, provoking to wrath, and it's always related to God. It's negative, and we are not to provoke our children to wrath and to anger. This is the key when it comes to encouraging your children. We are not to discourage them. A parallel verse to this is found in Colossians chapter 3 and it says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Verse 21, chapter 3 of Colossians. Lest they be discouraged. Very easy to discourage your children when we are provoking them to anger. To bring up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord is a blessing and a command. And so it will constitute a godly father for doing that right and acceptable thing in the sight of the Lord. The second part of this, as far as the role of the father, is to love the mother. To love the mother. To love his wife. And we find that, if you're in Ephesians, turn back one page to 
Chapter 5, if you need to turn a page. Chapter 5, verse 25. It says there, Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Then it says here in verse 29, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. This is the relationship between husbands and their wives. Do you know it's commanded in Scripture at least four or five times reminding men to love their wives. It only speaks once of that with regards to the women loving their husbands. Once only. Hmm. That's an interesting one. Because with the women, it's, it's charged to honour or to re- revere their husbands as unto Christ. That's reminded of the ladies several times. But of the men, it's to love their wives several times. Why? We forget. Do you ever notice that God doesn't actually command something that we already naturally do? Well, we naturally don't do that. We often, as men, forget to love our wives. But there is nothing more blessed to your children than for your children to know that you love their mother. It gives them that, I don't know what it is, but it gives them a a security and a comfort to know that the father loves the mother. It's such a wonderful blessing. (coughs) But the charge is an interesting one and not an easy one. We are to love them as Christ the church. We are to love them as Christ gave himself for the church. We are to love them to be willing to die for them. To be willing to die for our wives. That's the love that we are commanded to love our wives with. That's your responsibility, fathers. That's your responsibility. And that is the blessing. So we are to love the wife. Loving the wives also mean that it's demonstrated uh, not just in good times, when things are going well. You know, it's easy to be friendly with somebody when everything's going well. But it's difficult to be friendly and to be loving when things are going terribly. When things are going bad, then there needs to be still that love retained. There has to be a level of communication between the husband and the wife that when things are going bad, their communication doesn't go below a certain line. There still needs to be reverence. There still needs to be love. If we get to the point where we are verbally abusing our spouse, if we are calling them names, if we are moving towards an ad hominem type of argument with our wives, then we've crossed the line. We've crossed that threshold. It's a tragic state today where men and women as husbands and wives are literally verbally abusing and insulting one another, using swear words and curse words in their relationship. That should not be. That should never be. Because you've crossed the line. You've crossed the line. What do you do from that point now? How do you come back from that point? You're compared with Christ 
as he also loved the church. How faithful are we? How faithful is the church to the Lord? Are we not a little bit of a picture of Israel? Yet he won't divorce Israel. He wrote the entire book of Hosea. We've got all of Hosea. And Hosea goes out and he marries a woman of whoredoms. You know? And she commits whoredom. And he likens that to his relationship with Israel. He says, I will not write you a writing of divorcement. I will not separate myself from you. That's the position that we are to have with our wives. We are to love them, to cherish them. And they are sanctified also by the washing of the word. Okay, we are to be the Lord's representative to them. The third point in this element is to obey his Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, I think I got that one right. I knew that because I wanted to stay there. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Yep, I've got it right. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 14, now this is spoken to the first king of Israel and related to the first anointed king of Israel. This is speaking about Saul and this is Samuel speaking unto the people of Israel. And he says this in verse 14, If ye will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you, as it was against your fathers. There can be no expectation of obedience within the home that the the father is to govern if he himself will not be governed. Does that make sense? There cannot be an expectation of obedience within the home of the father if that house that he governs, but he himself will not be governed. We are to be governed. We are to be led. We are to obey. We cannot expect one to obey us if we will not obey our authority. It doesn't work. It's hypocritical. And our children see it. And it would mess them up completely if that was to continue and be consistent. We are to be obedient unto the Lord. This passage here was given to the people of Israel relating to the very first anointed king of Israel, that they were to still retain their obedience. Now, they did not do well in asking them a king because they, the Lord was their king. But they asked for themselves a king that he would govern over them. None of us govern in our own right. There is an authority that governs over the affairs of all men. All of creation is governed by the law of God. And he sets his world in order. And he set it in order to function both physically and ethically according to his commandments and law. Do you ever notice something really interesting? This universe that we have, it's physical, yeah? But there's something else written into the fabric of this universe that seems to be spiritual. There's an ethic a basic understanding of how this universe functions. Because when we do things that are wrong, things happen. There are consequences to them. And that's why Proverbs is given us as a, as a guide, as a lead. Because we have this advantage having the Word of God. You know? 
and we have an advantage having the word of God. And yet this universe came together. How did it come together? How did it come together? Do you remember? Yeah, it was spoken into existence, was it not? No? God fashioned this universe, but he spoke it into existence. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Things work according to his law, according to God's commandment. That's why we are to be obedient. That's why we are to trust him and trust him only. Therefore, fathers are to obey the commandments of the Lord. In doing so, he hath set to his seal that God is true. John 3.33 We cannot govern our homes hypocritically. We cannot govern our homes hypocritically. We must obey the Lord we represent. And that brings me to my last point. Brings me to my last point. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 14, please. We read a bit of it this morning, this afternoon with, uh, with Brother Kess. We'll read just verse 9, and, uh, 9 to 11. 9 to 11, John chapter 14, verse 9 to 11. Philip asks the Lord the question that he would show him the Father. Verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not to, of myself. But the Father which dwelleth in me, that dwelleth in me, he, doth, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very works' sake. In the passage, our Lord's expectation of Philip is that he would recognise the perfect work of the Father being done by the Son. He says, Hast thou not known me, Philip? He that had seen me had seen the Father. There's an expectation that Philip would recognise the Father in Christ. A clear expectation. Indeed, it seemed to surprise the Lord that, that, that it wasn't logically concluded by Philip that the work and the word of the Lord can, so, can be so evident in Christ that it's impossible to separate him from the Father. He says, And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believeth thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? It is not only the words of the Father that the Son speaks, but the works of God are manifest in the Son. He says, The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He that doeth the works, he, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. Brethren, we know that Jesus is the Father. He is the physical manifestation of God on earth. He was named Emmanuel, being interpreted God with us. And we've got this beautiful passage in Isaiah 9, 6. What a wonderful passage this is. And he says, just listen to it. You don't have to turn there. Isaiah 9, 6. And it says, um, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
This is a child that shall be born, brethren. This is a son that shall be given. And this same one is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of the Father. He is the Father. And He is the model on which our fatherhood is based as men. It is based on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that we have something of Christ already. The Bible says, it refers to us as the light of the world in Matthew 5.14. Yet He is the light that came into the world that shines out of the darkness in John chapter 1.5. Scripture tells us that in Him was life and that life was the light of men, John chapter 1.40. The Bible goes on to tell us that that was the true light that lighteth every man that comes into the world in John chapter 1 verse 9. Therefore, we are to shine His light firstly and most importantly to our family, to our wives and to our children. How do, we, how, do we, how do we do that? I mean, we're just flesh, you know. How do we do that? How, how does Eddie Giudetti shine the light of the Lord Jesus Christ to his family? How do I represent, and I use that word as two words, represent, we're presenting again, the Lord Jesus Christ to our family. This is a big job. You know, what sort of a responsibility is this now put on me? On you as a father. What sort of a responsibility is that? How can we do it? How do we do it? Well, the Bible tells us how we are to do it. The Bible already tells us in Romans 8, 29 that for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To what? to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's will is for you and I, men and women, children, to be conformed into the image of His Son. We are to be conformed. We're predestined to be conformed. It's going to happen. Whether it will happen with a massive gap at death or whether it will happen with a slightly smaller gap at death. That gap will be bridged and is bridged by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's pretty difficult to say a big or a small gap when we're talking about infinity. You know, we're talking about the infinite Lord. And even though we do all that we are commanded to do, we are still unprofitable servants. We've done that which was our duty to do, remember? We are to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is what? Our reasonable service. Not even a big service. It's just a very basic, reasonable service that we are to offer for the Lord. So we are to be changed into the image of God. How do we do this? How do we do this? What is his likeness? What is the Lord's likeness? There's a wonderful passage found in John chapter 1. It's the last passage I'll get you to turn to. Please turn there. John chapter 1. In verse 1 we see John telling us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. But you go all the way down to verse 14 and we get a bit of a picture. And it says there, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory 
as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Jesus is the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father. He was the one that declared him. And even his very presence among us. So, so do we have an example? So we then have an example of who to follow and who to emulate and who to behave like. Grace and truth. This is where we stand. We need a firm footing, guys. We need a firm footing of where and how we can become more like Jesus Christ. We need a firm footing. And we are... If I only had one sentence to say for this entire sermon, um, if I could believe that saying this sentence, you'd perform it, it's certain that I'd never need to preach again. I would never need to come before you. You would never need another teacher. You would never need to be coming together in fellowship if you would do this one thing that we have. To become as Christ, you must know him. You must know him. And the knowledge of him is found in the very name by which he is called. For his name is called the word of God. The Bible must be so ingrained within your hearts that you might become as he is. You know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God that the man of God may be perfect truly furnished unto all good works. That's the potential of the Word of God. Will we be perfect? No, I don't think in this life any of us are going to be perfect. But that is the potential for Scripture. That is the work of the Word within our own hearts and lives. To become like Christ, we need to know Him. And we cannot know Him apart from His Word. We have the Spirit of God already within us if you are born again. Do you already have that insight? But to know the Lord in His Word is vital. Fathers, our children are our children for a very short time. While they are in our care and under our authority, we are to train them up in the way they should go. In other words, while they are in our care, our relationship, to, our relationship to them is a representation of God's relationship to us. Until such time as they leave our home, where they will be led and governed directly by the Father. So when it comes to dealing with your children, think first how the Lord deals with those in Scripture and then think how He deals with you directly. In this you will know when to chastise, when to have mercy, when to administer grace and when to be silent. For there will be times that you will be only silent. There will be times where there will be nothing you can do but feel pain. It will happen. It's part of it. And it's part of what God has gone through with his own children. As as 
All we do as fathers is represent the Father in heaven to our children so that they will already recognise his character when they turn to him to lead them. Your responsibility is invaluable. Your worth as a father cannot be numbered when you are as your father, which is in heaven. This is our work, gentlemen, as fathers. This is our role as men to our family. The responsibility is a huge one, but it's a blessing. But we need to be changed into the image of Christ and grow into his likeness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for your wonderful word. We thank you for its beautiful simplicity, for the knowledge of it, for the understanding of it, for the hope that is found within it, that we might grow as men and as women, that we may grow, dear Lord, into your likeness, that we may be a picture of Christ to all those that are around us. I pray, dear Lord, particularly for these families represented here, And I ask you, dear Lord, that each one of us would take that responsibility seriously. Dear Lord, that we would learn, that we would trust, that we would obey, that we would believe your words. And I pray, dear Lord, that we would make a difference and be indeed a light shining out of the darkness. We thank you for this time. I just ask you, dear Lord, that you'll bless this congregation, dear Father, and bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.